Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people in the world. Nationally, Aboriginal people are jailed at a rate five times greater than black males were under apartheid South Africa. In Western Australia and the Northern Territory, the figure is eight times greater. In December last year, the Western Australian coroner delivered damning findings in the inquest into the death of Ms Dew, an Aboriginal woman detained in police custody for unpaid fines. The Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody produced 339 recommendations, which were released in 1991. That's 21 years ago. Recommendation 120 is that governments consider introducing an ongoing amnesty on the execution of long outstanding warrants of commitment for unpaid fines. Across the country, the juvenile detention system is in a state of crisis, brought to light in July 2016 with the Four Corners expose on Dondale Youth Detention Centre in the Northern Territory, where children, mostly Aboriginal, were being subjected to violence and brutality. The disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on Aboriginal people is directly related to this country's history of colonisation and genocide and the continued subjugation of Aboriginal people under successive government policies. Writer, poet, activist Vicky Roach is an Aboriginal woman, a former prisoner in Victoria, who gained a master's degree while in prison and remains to this day an activist and campaigner against the prison industrial complex. In 2007, she led and won a High Court challenge to the Howard government's ban on prisoners' right to vote, again achieving this from a cell at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre Women's Prison in Victoria. Vicky gave a talk at the Marxism Conference in 2014 about women and the criminal injustice system. And sadly, very little has changed. But with the current focus on the crisis in juvenile justice, I thought it was worth hearing Vicky's words again, and particularly her story from juvie to adult prison to activist. I need to warn listeners that at about 20 minutes in, Vicky describes the criminal justice system as totally effed up. That's right, she uses an expletive, and in order to honour her words, I've left that in. Here's Vicky Roach. I'd like to also acknowledge country and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and their ancestors and elders, past and present. Let's never forget that the earth beneath our roads, our places of business and learning, our civic buildings and even the land beneath our homes and in our backyards bears the long-ago footprints of those who came before us, those who fought to no avail to protect their land and their way of life. Sovereignty never ceded always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. Um, as Emma's just told you, I'm Vicky Roach. Uh, I'm an Aboriginal woman, descendant from the Yuan people of southern coastal New South Wales. My totem is black duck. Probably where that expression came from, not this little black duck. First of all, I'd like to tell you some of my story. And it starts with my mum, so you might want to get comfy. Mm -hmm. 
My mother spent pretty much her entire life in a home of one description or another, government home. Her own mother had abandoned her at birth when she discovered that my grandfather, and by extension her own newborn daughter, were Aboriginal. My grandfather had managed to pass himself off as Southern European up until then, and this woman, my bi biological grandmother, abandoned her child, my mother, in the maternity ward because the baby's blood was tainted abo or coon in the vernacular of the times. She should have stuck around. Mum turned out to be fair-skinned and blue-eyed. Anyway, with the baby's mother gone, Pop was in the army and couldn't look after my mum either. He also refused point-blank to allow his own mother to take care of her. Now, what the fornication, you might ask? And it's a fair question. It was because my great-grandmother was too black and Pop had been so successfully passing himself off as not Aboriginal, he reasoned that his child could too, so long as she didn't grow up with his mother. And I'll leave a name, my great-grandmother, she was black too, black mm -hmm. as. The Child Welfare Department agreed. Mum was clearly a perfect candidate for assimilation. She was never allowed the opportunity of being a part of a loving family. My great-grandmother's pleas to take mum and rear her in a loving home with extended family fell repeatedly on deaf ears. For the department, it was right and proper that a quarter-caste, mostly white-looking child like my mother, should follow her whiteness, not her blackness. Remember, this was the 40s. Anyway, mum was taken to a children's home run by the Child Welfare in Sydney and became a ward of the state. She was often given to foster parents, but was just as often physically and sexually abused in these placements, or just simply used as a domestic servant, and it's pretty common in those days too. When she wasn't believed by the authorities about her mistreatment and was callously left in these placements, naturally mum would run away, probably where I get it from. Her punishment was to spend the rest of her youth in Parramatta Girls' Home till she turned 18. Para, as it was commonly known, was an infamous child welfare institution in Sydney where mum was also horribly abused. She's currently pre preparing to tell her story about this in a private submission to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse, as am I, for that matter. I was born in 1958, little more than nine months after my mother's release from Parramatta Girls' Home on her 18th birthday. I just opened the gate, let her out with a tram ticket and, and an address to go to in a boarding house. My half-brother and I were taken into care when my mother, pregnant with a third child, and with her new husband in prison, presented at her local office of the child welfare asking for help. The unmarried mother's home where she had to go to have this third child uh, wouldn't take my brother and I, or couldn't take my brother and I, and she had no other alternatives. And of course the child welfare is the only parent she's ever known. Anyway, um, yeah, she had a few other alternatives. All she had was a pretend white father who had no interest in her, and a black grandmother she had no idea how to find. The manager of the welfare office she went to and the receptionist there were both members of the same church. They actually later married. The receptionist took me home that night to a mother, but the mother only wanted the little girl, me. She didn't want to take my little brother as well. He was placed uh, with another family, coincidentally from the same church, and was eventually adopted by that family. He actually had a great life, my brother. 
Uh, my mother's new baby developed diphtheria, however, and had to stay in hospital. And, of course, Mum stayed with her. And what else could she do? And because my mother took so long to come and get me, and despite the foster parents knowing the circumstances, my new foster mother went to court to get custody of me because she said it was so hard to look after me without any extra financial assistance, which, of course, my mother could not provide. My mother made it to the court just in time. She'd been given the heads up by the matron at the hospital that um, you know they were going to try and take me away from her. Um, but mum had been such a timid young 20-year-old, she was only about 20 at the time, through having been institutionalised all her life, when, when she turned up at the court, they told her she was being selfish by trying to keep me. Uh, when, oh, where am I up to? Yeah, she was being selfish by trying to keep me when clearly I would have a much better life with this good Christian family. Mum told me she just gave up when she lost me. She said she felt like something just went out inside her. My half-brother, as I mentioned, was adopted soon after and so was my new baby sister when she was released from hospital. My mum's now 73. She has emphysema. She never had any more children. Uh, she now knows two of us, um, myself and my half-brother, uh, but she's yet to meet the youngest daughter. My mother's life has been scarred by rejection, pain, trauma, struggle, defeat, and as her health declines, yet more pain, struggle and defeat. My formal, formal placement with this foster family, however, was problematic from the start, um, at least according to the department, because they were Protestant and my mother was Roman Catholic. She wasn't practising or anything and she wasn't particularly concerned that they were Protestant, but it was a problem for the department and they almost sent me to a church home. <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen, luckily, and I ended up staying with this family. But that wasn't the only problem. Uh, these foster parents were in their late 50s when they took me, and I was only two. It didn't actually seem to matter much when I was little, and I got brainwashed with the whole Sunday school thing. But I was an avid reader, and the Vietnam War was starting, and people were protesting and saying war was bad. And I agreed with them, but somehow that put me at odds with the church. Look, at, at the church, uh, we had this program where the older girls would take um, visiting GIs here on R&R, take them around and show them the sights of Sydney. Most of them got pregnant, including one of my foster sisters. And the, But they'd just spirit them away and they'd have their babies and come back like nothing had happened. You know, the babies had been adopted out. Um, war was being glorified. Young men were being sent to jail and worse because they didn't want to go and kill people they didn't know in another country. And we called them draft dodgers and there seemed to be no worse crime at the time. I began to question things and reject things about the church and a lot of other things I was being taught. And I don't think my foster mother liked that very much either. Um, I was just questioning everything. Even when I was good and uh, accepted the Lord Jesus into my heart, and got baptised. I even let Billy Graham touch me on the head once. It, it still wasn't good enough. Uh, according to her, I was just trying to get attention. If I was good at school, I was trying to get attention. Uh, look, I might have been a bit of a performer, but uh, and I like writing and singing and playing instruments and that sort of thing. Apparently, I could talk for hours. But all that was about getting attention. And uh, at school... I was actually very good at school and regularly came top in my class. But I also got into trouble a lot 
for talking and reading the wrong book in the wrong class and all that sort of thing. And I was probably quite obnoxious if I knew a teacher was wrong about anything. And uh, then one day at school I was being chased by bullies. And that's when I found out I was adopted. They chased me in the toilet. And I was only about eight or nine. And this is this is about the time I started running away from home. And it probably marked the time when my troubles really began. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This is Vicky Roach, anti-prison activist, writer, poet. She's speaking here at the Marxism Conference in 2014 about women in the criminal injustice system. And I thought her talk was particularly pertinent to the crisis in juvenile justice that is being exposed in the mainstream press at the moment. Of course, Vicky's point is that it's always been this way, especially for Aboriginal people. Recently, well, it's a couple of years ago now, I managed to get my woefully incomplete wardship file. And some of the things that um, I used to get reported to child welfare for were, girl is messy and untidy and will not clean her bedroom when told. Or child refuses to take no for an answer and insists on having the last word. we'll try this one continually has fads for projects that she then fails to complete and I recently read somewhere that that's an indication of intelligence (laughs) but it was in the 60s yeah the 60s the decade of peaceful protests sit-ins, peace-ins, love-ins although I did notice that police violence pervaded a lot of these events And I wasn't feeling the love so much at home either. So eventually I went looking for it elsewhere, as the song goes, in all the wrong places. The poor boy I fell in love with ended up getting five years in jail for carnal knowledge because I was only 12. And I got sent to a kid's home for over a year. The charges for me were neglect, uncontrollable and EMD, or exposed to moral danger. Even prior to that, though, I kept getting sent to a place called Glebe Metropolitan Girls Shelter uh, for my own good, also, for running away from home all the time. There I was sexually abused repeatedly by the doctor and then again by the superintendent of the girls' training school, where I was also sent for my own good. It was in these homes and even in my foster home that everybody began to threaten me with Parramatta Girls' Home, where my mother had been which even in my day had a fearsome reputation. And there was also another institution called Hay that's also um, coming up in the Royal Commission as well. Uh, They used to threaten me with, and that was even worse than Parramatta. It was a real uh, paramilitary-style place. So in the face of all these dire threats, I did what any normal oppositionally defiant 13-year-old would do. I ran away to Nimbin. But that's another story, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nimmin was pretty cool though um, I just sort of chilled out with the hippies and, and I learned a lot of things up there but somehow I wound up back in Sydney and there were no social security benefits or anything for, for underage kids back then you couldn't get them until you were 18 so I became a teenage hooker and acquired a heroin habit not necessarily in that order which led to my imprisonment in an adult maximum security prison at the age of 17 for a crime known at the time as self-administration of a prohibited drug to wit, dot, dot, dot. And there they could insert anything. It could be cannabis, it could be coke. And in my case, it was, uh, to wit, diamorphine or heroin. 
it was they used to call it diamorphine back then. They didn't actually catch me doing it. They didn't find anything on me. I wasn't even doing anything wrong when they grabbed me, except waiting for my dealer, but they didn't know that. Um, all they knew was that they saw what they believed to be needle marks on my arms. They promised to get me help if I would just admit that I used heroin. Now, to me, I thought the help sounded like a pretty good idea at the time, so I nodded to it. Never trust a copper, word of warning. <laughs> I wound up in a cell, spilled my ring out from withdrawals and with a six-month jail sentence. Now, you might be wondering why I'm telling you all this, all this personal stuff. Well, I'm hoping you will have picked up that it all started for me when my mother was stolen and institutionalised. Right? I said she was abandoned, didn't I? But she was stolen from the Aboriginal grandmother who could and would have given her a loving home. My great-grandmother was nothing short of heroic in her attempts to get mum out of the homes, albeit to no avail. My mother, um, unlike me, managed to stay out of prison. She'd been so cowed and beaten by the system before she was even released from Parramatta Girls' Home. She didn't dare stick her head up. She worked her guts out all her life, paid her taxes, paid her fines, did all the right things, struggling to make a better life for herself, and now she lives on the pension in a caravan park out in the bush on an oxygen machine. When I was taken for mum, it put me straight into the juvenile justice system, although it wasn't called that back then. It actually gave me a criminal record at the age of two. When I got my wardship file, the first document in there was a charge sheet from 1961. I was two years old and I was charged with those same three things, neglect, uncontrollable and exposed to moral danger. It was a device to be able to take children away from their parents. <sighs> from there, every misdemeanour with my foster parents or at school resulted in sanctions from the department, which led to the girls' homes, which were led to jail, at a far younger age and for, a far less or for far less serious offences than other girls. These days I've been in and out of prison for nearly 40 years, although I'm currently coming up to my sixth year of freedom at the moment. The fact is, and I guess the point I'm trying to make, is that our ever-increasing prison populations are made up of people like me, Aboriginal people, other people from disadvantaged backgrounds with little education, few job prospects, people with mental health issues and or substance use issues, which are invariably caused by any number of horrific traumatic events in that person's life. Of course, there's often crime associated with these things, which results in the imprisonment, but are we simply criminalising survival? In the 2011 World Health Organisation Bulletin, they reported that around 10, 10 million people are being held in penal institutions around the world. Half a million of those incarcerated are women and girls. They also say that women who enter prison usually come from marginalised and disadvantaged backgrounds and are often characterised by histories of violence, physical and sexual abuse. In Dame Phyllis Frost, they did, um, no, some statistics came out and 89% of women there had experienced um, sexual uh, abuse as either a child or an adult. 89%. It's a lot of people. Um, globally, the rise in imprisonment of women over the last decade has increased in some cases by 200%. 
while for men the increase has been roughly 50% over the same time. In Australia, the ABS says the rate of incarceration per 100,000 for males has increased by almost 15%. But for females, the rate of imprisonment has jumped from 12 per, 12, uh, per 100,000 in 1995 to 19.2 per 100,000 in 2002. This 60% increase in the rate of female imprisonment is four times the increase for males. That's got to say something. Things are even worse for Aboriginal women in Australia. In an article for The Stringer just last year, Debbie Kilroy of Sisters Inside Fame, I don't know if any of you have heard of them, uh, she quoted a 2011 review of Indigenous incarceration rates by uh, the Australian Parliament, which found that while Indigenous men were 17.5 times more likely to go to, uh, go to prison than non-Indigenous men, Indigenous women are a whopping 21.5 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous women. Uh, I think it was only like 15%, 15-16% around 10 years ago when, when I first went in last time. As I say, my current bout of freedom has lasted six years so far. And while I did, <laughs> while I did manage some pretty cool stuff while I was in prison, like getting my master's degree, and that was despite being in prison, I might add. There was no, um, they didn't help facilitate that or anything. I had to fight for it. Um, well, and, and as Emma mentioned, defeating the Howard government in the High Court over their attempted ban on prisoners voting. I can personally vouch for the fact that our justice system is well and truly, can I say fucked? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's well and truly fucked. <laughs> and you know what? Most of the time since I've been out, I've been trying to fit in and be the good little citizen like my mother did to try and stay out of the lockup, while at the same time still trying to fight a system that continues to incarcerate people at ever-increasing rates. Have you noticed how many things are being decriminalised, uh, being criminalised these days? Protesting here in Victoria for a start. Freedom of Association in Queensland, they're doing something similar in New South Wales. Watch this space, there'll be more to come, get ready for it. I've come to realise, however, that I'll never fit in. The world is just not designed that way. The entire system is rotten, to the core, from the top down. And it all needs to come down. And I'm not just talking about the prison system. The entire rotten capitalist system needs to come down. Because, yep, you guessed it. Capitalists make lots and lots of money from keeping people in detention, including Nauru, Manus, Christmas Island, and even our onshore detention, uh, immigration detention centres, as well as a lot of our privatised prisons. And I know I've been talking to you for, for a fair while now, so I just want to leave you with a few words. Uh, somebody told me who said them this morning, Thomas Jefferson. Um so this is the first time I've been able to attribute these words, but they've become something of a mantra to me. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. That was Vicky Roach. Aboriginal anti-prison activist speaking there at the Marxism 2014 conference on the criminal injustice system. And that's all we have time for today.
Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Thank you.